Psalm 69. As uh, I go through the Psalms here on Sunday morning, I am choosing Psalms that either are Messianic or that Jesus quoted in the New Testament since the Psalms uh, were his favorite book. This is a Messianic Psalm. You'll see why. A couple of verses here that are applied to Jesus. The psalmist describes being thrown into a pit by fools who refuse to receive the word of God. I asked Mr. T what he would call this message, and he said, I'm pitted by fools. Does everybody know who Mr. T is? Uh, raise your hand if you don't know Mr. T. Uh, I almost had you. <laughs> Father, thank you so much this morning for our time thus far. It's been rich and full and blessed with a sense of your presence. We do pray again for the Fredenbergs, Lord, that they would be abundantly blessed in their move. Lord, now as we pay attention to your word, I pray that it would uh, bring life and light to our hearts, especially those of us, Lord, who may be struggling in some... Uh, Deep, deep trouble, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. 1.82 seconds. It is the current pit stop record time in Grand Prix racing. The feat was accomplished by the Aston Martin Red Bull racing crew in Brazil back in November of 2019. It was the third time they had set a new record. In case you're wondering, the average pit stop takes an agonizing 2.4 seconds. And so they've really got that down. Pit stops are essential. Just ask Lightning McQueen. His refusal to pit cost him the Piston Cup and forced another race. There's a pit stop for real in Psalm 69. Listen as I read a selection from the verses. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered out of deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. It sounds like he was thrown into a hollowed out rock reservoir called a cistern. Runoff and rainwater would collect in it, creating mud and muck and mire on the bottom. The sides were too slimy to climb out. If the water was deep enough, a person thrown into one would definitely drown. I'm guessing none among us has been thrown into a cistern. Nevertheless, we often use these images to describe our troubles. It becomes a metaphor for them. We say, I'm drowning in debt. We say, I'm stuck in the mire. We say, I feel like I'm sinking. We say, I'm in deep water. We say, I'm being swallowed up. We say, I'm up to my neck. When you find yourself in the pits, Psalm 69 will be a sustaining read. I'll organize my comments around these two points. Number one, you can't avoid your pit stops, but number two, you will arise from your pit starts. Let's take a look in the first 12 verses at pit stops. Now, there's a thread of research among scholars that this psalm was not written by David about an incident in his life. They say it was written much later about an incident involving the prophet Jeremiah. It wasn't written by Jeremiah, but about him. In the 6th century BC, Jeremiah delivered God's word to rebellious Judah, surrender to Babylon. It wasn't received, and among his many persecutions for preaching the word, he was thrown into a cistern. One of those scholars I alluded to points out, and I quote, this whole psalm could certainly be prayed in Jeremiah's voice. It seems to be a summary of Jeremiah's suffering. He was thrown into a cistern and sank in its muck. 
His own family plotted against him. He suffered shame and disgrace for God's sake. He pled for God's vengeance against his enemies. The collected Psalms span many centuries. They were not compiled as we know them until after the Babylonian captivity in about the third century BC. We can't say for certain, but I lean towards Psalm 69 being about Jeremiah. If not, his experience in the cistern is exemplary of whoever is being talked about. You learn more about being in a cistern from Jeremiah than from anyone else in scripture. And so verse one, to the chief musician set to the lilies, a Psalm of David, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. This designation, a Psalm of David, it's traditional and important, but it's not inspired. It wasn't part of the inspired text, it was added. Someone else could have written this song either to the popular tune of the lilies or on an instrument called the lilies that David had uh, probably designed and built. He was neck deep, no exaggerating. He thought he was going to drown. Whether it was Jeremiah or David or some other saint, our first lesson is obvious. In the world, you will have tribulation. Uh, And so we shouldn't think it's strange when something happens to us, we should expect it. Usually we think it's strange because it comes from an odd source. It comes from another Christian or at work where everything had been going right or something like that. And you don't recognize it as a trial or as a trouble. You just think it's an annoyance or something that you need to get out from under. But uh, trouble is out there and we will experience it. He says, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. The mire was so deep that his feet could not touch anything solid. Thrown down there, it was just so muddy that he really couldn't get any footing. He continued to sink. One translation uses the term swamp water instead of floods. And so he was treading thick, murky water sinking into the mud below. Verse three, I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. His crying was that whole body sobbing you've seen in deep sorrow. Maybe some of you have done that where you're just so grieved that your entire body starts to shake. It's terrifying, actually, to be with somebody like that. You don't know if they're having a seizure. And it seems like they're never going to stop sobbing. Throat dry from loudly crying out. Uh, It's it's like the old uh, T-ball days. How many of you coached T-ball? I have mad respect for you if you did that. Run! Run! Pick up the ball. (laughs) And it seemed like you're always playing the championship team, even though nobody kept score or anything. It was always the number one team. You know, they all had. But I would get out there and I would be hoarse. I have to, I had to really, you know, I'd get up on Sunday morning to teach after a Saturday of T-ball and I was, uh, open your Bibles. like the Godfather or something. So I had to tone that down. His eyes failed. Probably they were full of mud. I mean, you know, you instinctively, you get this. I mean, if you're drowning in a cistern, you're going to get stuff in your eyes. And then you're going to try and rub your eyes and your hands are all full of stuff. And I mean, this was, this was a very serious situation. And there was no escape from this cistern. Only God could save him. So he must wait. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. One thing we can know for sure about this uh, individual, 
he, had, he wasn't bald. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to use this analogy. I just, the other day, I thought, you know, I haven't made many bald jokes lately. Some of you bald guys are getting away with it, so let's, uh, let's get back on track. But anyway, somebody told me one time, your hair, you're going to lose your hair for all these bald jokes you're making. I go, no, sorry, not going to happen. I have hereditary or heredity on my side. Those who hate me without a cause, more than the hairs of my head. Okay, we read that. A lot of powerful people opposed him. He was obviously in the right, but he was treated as if he were a criminal. It was as if he was being accused of robbery, but being innocent, he had nothing to restore. Reminds me of all those TV and movies where they're trying to get information out of somebody, and finally, after they've pulled out all their teeth and knifed their nose and cut their ears off, they say, well, I guess if he would have known something, he would have told us. But they didn't know anything. And so the, Jeremiah, whoever is saying, I can't, rest, I can't tell you what I don't know. I can't restore. I'm not a criminal. The Lord is telling me to give you this message. Oh, God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake, I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. God was using him despite his own shortcomings, which he calls his sins and foolishness. Your shortcomings, my shortcomings, they're not an excuse for tapping out of spiritual battle. All of us have shortcomings and all the guys in the Bible have shortcomings. Uh, the closest you come to people being almost seeming perfect would be Joseph and Daniel. Uh, but I'm sure those guys had things going on because they were human and had a human nature. Uh, and, and so, you know, all these guys, if it was Jeremiah, Jeremiah, when God first came to him, he said, yeah, no, you've got the wrong guy. He did a Moses on him. Remember, Moses said, hey, that's all great, but I, I'm not going to do it. You need to pick somebody else. And so we all, this is, you know, when we talk on Sunday morning, we're not talking about super saints. We're talking about the average saint, the everyday saint filled with the Holy Spirit. You are up for it. In his pit, he remained genuinely concerned that believers not be stumbled by what was happening but that they would understand it was for the Lord that he was afflicted. Your testimony is important. One thing you should always think about when you're in a trouble or going through troubles is how does it look to outsiders? Because you've told people that you're a Christian, that you have the Holy Spirit, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And then if we act just like non-believers in our trouble, then what's the difference? There is no difference because we're not relying on the Lord. Uh, and so we need to think about our testimony. How is this going to look? How is this going to come across? Because we don't want to do any damage to God's reputation. Verse eight, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's children. Many of you, upon being born again of the spirit, were rejected by those who you are related to by your first physical birth. It stung. It, was a, it still is a deep pit for many. Their relationship with their natural family is, was never really healed or repaired. They think you're a Jesus freak or a member of a cult. They might try and take your children away from you or at least threaten to do that because you're such a cult. Uh, and, and so it, it, it hurts. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up and reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jeremiah often preached just outside the temple. It was his spot, so to speak, because he had a message about the temple. The, the kingdom of Israel in the north had fallen to the Assyrians. The kingdom in the south, the, the, uh, in Judah, they thought, well, we'll never fall because we have the temple. 
God will never let his temple fall or fail or be overrun. And so they, they lived over the edge. They were involved in idolatry and rebellion and all of this stuff. And they refused to heed Jeremiah. And so he would stand outside the temple and he would point to the temple and say, the temple, the temple. And what he meant was, you're trusting in the temple, but God's going to destroy it. And they didn't believe him. Of course, we know that God did destroy, allow that temple to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in about 586 BC. And so he, that was his spot. You could expect Jeremiah to be there. When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple courts at the beginning of his ministry, his disciples remembered this passage. You can read it in John chapter 2. Again, a messianic promise showing that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus had Jeremiah-like sorrows. For example, his family rejected him. At one point, they thought he was insane. And they went to get him, and he said, well, who is my family? Uh, you know, my mother and brothers and sisters are those who do my will. And so there was a lot of tension between Jesus and his family while he was uh, in his ministry. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. Interesting here, fasting was promoted uh, or prompted rather not by personal discipline, but by distress. He didn't say, hey, things are bad in Judah, so let's call a fast. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, calling for a fast, having your church fast, you know, those kinds of things. That's great. But what he's describing is I fasted because I couldn't eat. I was so engrossed and engulfed in this sorrow and praying and whatever uh, that I couldn't even eat. And so it was a kind of uh, supernatural fasting in the sense that he didn't even realize he was doing it. A lot of times we pray for revival in America. And the, the question always is because prayer accompanies revival the question always is, does prayer bring it or does the revival bring prayer? And the answer is nobody knows. But revival doesn't come by just us having a brief prayer meeting and asking for revival. It, we'll know that it's revival when we're missing our meals, on not on purpose, but because we're so distressed about the state of our nation and the state of the world and the state of human hearts that we, we are sorrowed and can't eat. Uh, and, and that kind of a thing. And I'm not saying you can work yourself up into that state. I'm just saying uh, that's the kind of fasting that this individual had done. Sackcloth was goat's hair outer garment, and it was worn to signify mourning. We don't really have, well, we do. I was going to say, uh, you know, as a law enforcement chaplain, you've seen, uh, and a fire chaplain, you've seen how they'll put the black band on the badges when someone in their uh, unit has died when there's a dead officer or a dead firefighter. And so, you, you know, you recognize that something terrible has happened. And so in Israel, that was kind of the clothing. You would you put on your garments and then you would put the sackcloth on on top. And people will know you were mourning for something. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me and I am the song of drunkards. Think of byword as an ancient meme the Jews would apply this man's name or his words to things to have a good laugh. Oh, what's that, a bullfrog? Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, it's not funny, but it, it's an illustration. Give me a break. Can't, you can't bat, even, you know, even Ted Williams didn't bat a thousand. But anyway, men sat in the gate for a time each day to hear quarrels or to conduct business. Uh, while they were there, this, the singer of this song was derided. Uh, he was made fun of, and he was, the, uh, you know, the topic of the town, you might say. And then at night, 
Those same individuals would be drunkards singing crude lyrics about him. Oh, Jeremiah. Anyway, I'm not going to go on, but anyway, because I don't have anything to say. But anyway, three pit points emerge. Only God can save you. You're asked to wait for God to save you. And you bear his reproach by maintaining your testimony while you wait for God to save you. And so if you're in a trial, if you're in the pit, as it were, drowning in whatever or sunk over your head, wait on the Lord to save you and do it with your testimony in mind so that others see the power of God. You can arise from your pit starts. Lightning McQueen had an odd pit crew in the Piston Cup showdown. The other crews, professional crews, made fun of them. After a bump by Chick Hicks caused two flats, McQueen had to pit under a yellow flag. He limped in. Guido was up for the task, completing the four-tire change in what announcer Bob Cutlass called the fastest pit stop I've ever seen. McQueen then made the most of his pit start. He still had to get back out on the track ahead of the yellow flag, which he did. We need to make good pit starts and rely on the Lord. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. There is a time for prayer to be answered by God. However long or short, it should be acceptable to the saint who's praying it. That's what this means. Lord, I'm praying. And when you give me my answer, that's acceptable. That's the acceptable time. And because we are saved, God will answer out of the multitude of his mercy. Have you discovered that God has different mercies? Or we could say mercy is revealed to us in many different ways. I mean, normally we say, you know, quaintly in a Bible study, uh, you know, mercy is not getting what you deserve. And that's true. That's a good definition of mercy. But it doesn't really tell us much about God's mercy. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. And so we could call these new every morning mercies. And it, it seems like it isn't just God's mercy is there every morning. He says they are new every morning. There's some new aspect to mercy that wasn't there the day before. So maybe not the minute I wake up, but certainly later on in the day, I'm going to experience something new about God's mercy. There are tender mercies. For example, Psalm 25, verse 6. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. This phrase, tender mercies, occurs 24 times in the Bible. It's one of the key ways that mercy is brought to us, tender mercies. Nehemiah 9, 19. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. Then there are great mercies. Isaiah 54, 7 says, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. Isaiah 55, 3 mentions sure mercies. Some mercies may not be listed in the Bible. They're off-menu mercies, you might say. C.S. Lewis spoke of severe mercies. He coined the term in reference to the Lord allowing a believing wife to die in order that her non-believing husband might see beyond earthly love to God's agape and be saved. You can read about it in the book, A Severe Mercy. And so God's various mercies cannot be understood apart from experiencing them. They can't just be defined. It'd be good to go through and see how these words are used and what was going on in the lives of the saints used of them. Uh, but if you want to experience God's mercy, you have to experience it. 
How many of these mercies have you experienced? If you were to make a list, just thinking about mercy, and this would be a great devotion, and study mercy out a little bit and see where it's used in the scripture and then say, when has God been merciful to me and how would I label that? I'll bet all of us have had severe mercies at one point or another. But what about some of these other ones? And how is your mercy new today, better today than it was yesterday? It's a great, great meditation. God's various mercies cannot be understood apart from experiencing them. And so that's what this psalmist was going through. Verse 14, deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. Let not the pit shut its mouth on me. You've all seen those movie quicksand, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's gurgling. There's that last gurgling and uh, he's gone. This is a good pit prayer. And one thing that struck me, the lyricist had become intimately acquainted with life in a cistern. I would say, get to know your troubles, experiencing them fully. As some would say, I, I don't necessarily like this expression. I don't like any overused expression, but people say you should own it. Have you heard that? You're in trouble, own your troubles. Lewis also said, where we find difficulty, we may always expect that a discovery awaits us. And so my go-to example, obviously Paul, lots of suffering in his life. He had this thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him. He prayed about it. Jesus said, uh, no, I'm not gonna take it away. It's, it's uh, you know, your affliction, keep you humble. And so Paul owned it. He said, all right then then uh, I will gladly joy in my uh, tribulations. And this is just a light affliction that's but for a moment. And so when you're in the pit, that's the attitude. I was going to title this message, Pit Boss. Learn to live in your pit like a boss. Verse 16, hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. God's loving kindness is not simply good. We read elsewhere and we've sung that it is better than life. And again, we see tender mercies coming to this individual. Verse 19, you know my reproach, my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity and there was none and for comforters, but I found none. Can you stand alone in your troubles? Can I? Avengers Endgame builds to a terrific, epic scene when a battered Captain America snaps on his shattered shield to stand alone against the martial forces of evil. Can you stand alone with only the Lord as your shield against the martial forces of evil? You can't know until the pit and your pit restart. That, you just can't. You, and it's not negative thing. It's not that you're not mature, but you don't know what you're going to do in a situation until you're in that situation. Sometimes, you know, situations bring out heroic, courageous acts. Other times, like in Seinfeld, George thought there was a fire and he ran out of the birthday party and left all the little kids to die. <laughs> but they didn't die. That would have been too much. That would have been more like the Twilight Zone. But anyway... They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. As a prisoner prior to the pit, this saint was treated poorly, obviously. But this is another line in Psalm 69 that is referred to in the New Testament. 
On the cross, they gave Jesus vinegar to drink. This is described in Matthew. And then John is even more clear. He says this was done that the scripture might be fulfilled, this scripture. So uh, pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah spoken of. Verse 22, let their table become a snare before them and let their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they don't see. Make their loins shake continuously. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of grief of those who have been wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. So once again, we find ourselves dealing with an imprecatory, the calling down of curses on enemies. Our approach is to see these statements as confirming the final destiny of non-believers. They won't come into God's righteousness in the afterlife. In this life, they're like Pharaoh in the Exodus, hardening their hearts despite God's mercies. Uh, and they will eventually find themselves judged. But verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of, lo- of the living and not be written with the righteous. In Revelation chapter 20, we're told that at the resurrection of the wicked dead, quote, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by things which were written in the books. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There are obviously various ways to understand the book of life, or we could call it the book of the living. It seems to be the census of every human life. All names of all people of all time are in it. If you die in unrighteousness, meaning you didn't believe God, your name is removed from it. You're then at the great white throne judged according to your works, but your name is not found written in the book of life. God never declared you righteous. You can't be saved and you must be cast into hell. Verse 29, but I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. In contrast to the non-believer, the believer knows their wretchedness before God. They trust in his salvation and declaring us righteous thanks to Jesus We are set up on high now and forever. It's interesting. I'm just thinking about this right now. But, uh, you know, the the unrighteous are above him, looking down upon him in this pit, which seems to be, uh, you know, uh, fatal. But he says, I'm going to rise up above them because I'm the righteous and they're the unrighteous. And so even though he's in this terrible trouble, he sees a picture in it of his future. And the worst thing that could happen is that he'd get a lung full of mud and he'd die. And uh, if you're Jeremiah, that's not the worst thing that might happen. I mean, he had some really difficult trials uh, and such. And so uh, he controlled this situation in his mind. Didn't really matter what they did to him because the Lord was with him. Contrast to the believer, uh, the non-believer rather, we know our wretchedness before God. Verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song and magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull, which has horns and hooves. You're going to emerge from the pits a better living sacrifice. And that's what we are today, living sacrifices for the Lord. Your relationship with the Lord is more intimate after a pit. You realize that what God wants is not your works, but to walk with you. The humble shall see this and be glad. You who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. 
The Apostle Paul, when he was in prison, would call himself the prisoner of the Lord. If God was willing to let him stay incarcerated, then he would serve the Lord as a prisoner. He could serve the Lord as a free man. He could serve the Lord as a prisoner. It didn't make any difference to him. If God is willing to leave you in a pit, then you are the pitted of the Lord, and you can serve the Lord in that pit. Verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. One day, this will be our reality. It will be the real new normal. Did I say already that I hate that term? Did I say that this morning? I know I said it first service, but this idea of the new normal, we don't want a new normal. I don't know what, if we could call anything normal, but it was, we don't want a new one based on all this crazy stuff, uh, you know, uh, but there will be a new normal. Normal is there's no sin, there's no death, there's no disease, there's no sorrow, there's no tears. That's the way it was originally set up in the Garden of Eden. And throughout the entire Bible, we see God's plan to restore to that same place, to uh, regenerate and, and save humanity and to restore creation. Genesis to Revelation, one story about God restoring what was lost. That will be the normal. It won't be a new normal. It will be a return to normal. I guess it will be the old normal. So we're, when people say, do you want the new normal? Say, no, I want the old normal. I really do. The renewed normal. Somebody just sent me a text. Feel free to text me as I'm teaching it, especially if you have a good idea. The renewed normal. I'm serious. I know you don't think so, but anyway. God keeps this plan progressing by providence. He provides for it. Without violating our free will, he can oversee this plan. It will happen just as it's written in Revelation. For God will save Zion and will build cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. Also, the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Verse 35, that sounds like the millennial kingdom. Jesus ruling the earth from David's throne in Jerusalem. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. Uh, Israel is in the land, and they are building cities, and there's a big thing going on with them annexing some property. But you can't say God has saved Zion. The Israelis, that are there are Christian Jews, or Jews who are born again, But you wouldn't say that Israel is a saved nation by any means. They don't believe Jesus is their Messiah. And so this is a future prophecy of the uh, millennial kingdom. And then verse 36, all the descendants. uh, No jokes. You're you're the old, by the way. That's meaningful just to me and him. Uh, Verse 36 sounds like eternity. Descendants of believers, both Jew and Gentile, dwelling forever in the restored earth with the new Jerusalem as a brilliant gem of a city. Maybe you're having a hard time relating to your troubles as a cistern. And that's why God has lots of other figurative illustrations for you. Moses floated in a basket with crocodiles. Now, he was a baby, probably didn't know how serious that was, uh, but not a situation you'd like to be in. Daniel had the lion's den experience. Daniel's three companions had the fiery furnace. Belly of a great fish, more to your liking? God could serve that up too. In the book of Hebrews, we read of believers hiding in dens and in caves. All of these are types of pits. They're all kinds of troubles that you are in to experience the blessing of God, the mercy of God, his tender mercies. No pit, no pit start. There would be no intimate experience of God's loving kindness and of his mercies. As again, I'd say... You can't experience God's mercy unless you need God's mercy. 
And, you know, it's, it's not just that it's there if you need it. God says it's new all the time. There'd be no opportunity for the unrighteous to see themselves as God does in contrast to your faithfulness. Now, maybe not that many people in Jeremiah's day saw themselves as sinners because they were persecuting him, but there were some who would understand that he had done nothing wrong and there was no reason to treat him that way. In fact, to finish out the story, one such individual got him out of the cistern and he did it in a really tender way. He padded the ropes so that he, Jeremiah wouldn't even get rope burn when he was coming out. And the scripture makes a big deal about that. And so, um, uh, you know, no opportunity for the unrighteous to see themselves. He obviously saw himself as a person that needed to help Jeremiah. You would never be sure that God is your sufficiency unless he takes things away that you trust in. And he does it as a jealous God because he loves you and it's a good thing. It's not to be cruel. It's, it's not like some temptation or test or anything like that. Or if it's a test, it's a test to show you how much you need him and how much he loves you. You would never be sure of his sufficiency. And finally, there would be no song to sing. No pit, no Psalm 69. You would have nothing to read when you were in your pit. Now you do. And hopefully it will sustain you and bless you.